Hello, you wonderful people. If you haven't already, make sure you sign up to our Patreon account. The link will be in the description of this podcast, but you can also go to patreon.com forward slash Pod. For as little as four euros a month, you can help us out and become part of our little community. You'll get early access to all of the pods and you'll also get a monthly newsletter from myself and Jim. So basically two monthly newsletters where we'll talk about stuff that's going on in our own personal lives and what we've been thinking about slash inspired about. We also are asking you guys to get involved with the podcast so you can send in questions for our upcoming guests or you can suggest to us people or topics you would like us to interview and explore further. Um, We love you. We hope that you love us and hopefully just by giving us as little as four euros a month, that's basically, it's not even a pint in London that you can help us become an even better podcast. Thank you all. Hello friends and welcome back to the Earthly Delights. Jill Violet is the guest this week. Now Jill is the founder of Playworks, the leading American nonprofit leveraging the power of safe, fun and healthy play at school every day. Playworks creates a place for every kid on the playground to, to feel included, to be active and build valuable social and emotional skills. Playworks partners with schools, districts, and after-school programs to provide a service or a mix of services, including on-site coaches, professional training for school staff who support recess, and consultative partnerships. In this conversation, Jill informs us of the significance of play for children, adolescents, and adults, and its relationship to a more engaged, communicative society. I asked Jill on, as I've been thinking a lot lately, about the lack of play and fun in our jam-packed lives. And Jill speaks with a wise nuance and with a passion that is truly uplifting. I hope this podcast might encourage you to look at the less serious aspects of life, such as play, with more reverence and understand and emphasize the crucial nature of it to our personal and collective well-being. If you would like to learn more about Jill or the work of Playworks, please see the link below. Thanks a million, friends. All the best. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. This week, our guest is Jill Violet. Thanks a million for coming on. My pleasure. First and foremost, what's the crack? How are you keeping? <laughs> I'm good. That's so Irish of you. I'm really so pleased by that. Uh, <laughs> I'm a little worried about the Ukraine. Um, I'm, uh, you know, focused on like the mundane and the big at once. And it's, it's, but it's so emblematic of this moment, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to bring you no. down right away at the beginning. <laughs> no, it's the, it's a difficult place to be for sure. Um, yeah, kind of, and like, this is what I want to talk about as we get on to your work. But the kind of idea that it's so easy to feel somewhat powerless when you're kind of hearing about these big overarching issues, right? And yeah, you want to do something, but you don't know what you could do, and I think tough for us it is it's tough and then i also think it's super instructive right i have found so much solace in um sort of applying the lessons of play to navigating this moment and like i just feel much better if i do something no matter how small or like how seemingly inconsequential 
um, you just it feels like you've got two choices. You can either spin out and worry, or you can lean in. And I, I, I I'm a I'm a believer in the power of of small acts, you know, done by lots and lots and lots and lots of people, and and just the fundamental value of caring. <laughs> I'm with you there. I, I guess I wanted to ask as well. Do you think sometimes we we don't we believe that don't really matter? We think oh, what's the oh. point of even trying? Yeah, for sure, right? Like I think. Yeah. I mean, I think especially in the United States, um, I've been. I started doing. I've been doing lots of work around play, but have been in the sort of the last two really pivoted to thinking more about sort of engaging with democracy in a playful way. And, um, and you hear it all the time, like my vote doesn't matter. It, and, but even, even though, and it feels maybe like a, a weird parallel, but you see that like with kids on the playground, like that's one of the first places we learn where like what you do and how you show up matter profoundly and they it's the difference between a good experience and a bad experience and um and i just i people i think are sometimes a little uncomfortable when i make comparisons between recess and democracy but i'm like suck it up buttercup like that's just like we are humans <laughs> and doing our best yeah I, I, this is definitely a, what a what one of the aims for this podcast is for someone listening who would be quite um, interested in politics and democracy and community engagement. Uh, here, like we don't have time to be talking about play, and I think your book does a very great job of showing that really all of the tr and the skills that we need for an effective community and and, uh, and communication with people that we don't know so well, and our ability to lead come from the playground yeah yeah, yeah um, i so definitely before, I, yeah sorry. go ahead well i was sorry, just gonna try you go <laughs> we could rock paper scissors to see who goes but i think you should go since it's your podcast okay <laughs> okay so i was gonna say before we get into that can i ask um for listeners unfamiliar with you or your work can you tell us a bit about yourself and and how you became so involved in play Sure. So I, um, I am. A, I guess I would describe myself as a serial social entrepreneur. I started my first nonprofit when I was 23 years old, which was a children's art museum, which um, is happily still alive and well in Oakland, California. And to my great delight, is led by a woman who, when I was 24, she was my 14-year-old intern. Um, and I just, I love that. Like this, that just makes me super happy that she's now the executive director. Um, Mocha is great. And then I ran Mocha for about nine years. And then um, I was having this sort of series of experiences where I was just noticing that um, play in schools didn't feel the way I recalled play feeling. Like I was a kid who like super hyperactive and um, undoubtedly if I was living, if I was a kid today, I would have been diagnosed with ADD and all these, I would have been medicated heavily. Um, instead, my parents just like ran me like I was a border collie. <laughs> and um, so I lived for recess. And so being out in schools and seeing, um, and, I, and I have a, a fairly high tolerance for chaos, but I would say there's good chaos and there's bad chaos. And what I was seeing was sort of a chaos that didn't feel 
um, healthy and joyful. And so um, I, I kept having that experience and, and then it sort of, uh, sort of reached a breaking point with a principal who took me aside and asked if I might sort of do what I had done with art in her school, but with play and recess. And so that led to me founding this nonprofit called Playworks, which has grown um, throughout the United States. And in fact, has a little bit of um, presence in, in, in Ireland there in, in, um, in, in Dublin and Galloway. And, and, uh, and, then, um, and then more recently, um, while running Playworks, had this experience where principals would quietly beg me to lend uh, our, the Playworks coach to be a substitute teacher, or some parts call it supply teacher, you know, the sort of a stand-in teacher when a teacher is absent. So it started another nonprofit called uh, Substantial Classrooms. So uh, with the pandemic, I laid myself off at Playworks and I've been um, sort of pivoting, get engaging more with politics. I've written a couple of books and, um, and I'm teaching at both uh, UC Berkeley at the business school and at Stanford at um, the, school, the design school. Busy woman. That's what I do. Well, it, yes, busy. And then I like to run and play outside and I have a blended family with five kids between the ages of 18 and 26. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Well, I definitely want to ask you how you go about playing. But um, yeah. the the first follow-up question I think for listeners would be what why do you think play is so important or what were the first steps or signs that you saw that play really does have greater significance than very often people give it? Yeah. You know, I think when I was starting Playworks, the insight that drove me the most was one of empathy. That like as a kid, I sometimes felt like kind of nerdy and other and like, and, the, and the, the one time where I always felt like I fit in was when we were playing, like, right? This sort of wordlessly communicating in this very profound way with people from just school ground, playground games to like sport, like from, I played basketball and, and soccer in, co in high school and ended up playing rugby in, in college and then after. And there is this way of communicating with other humans um, that feels to me just profoundly true and, um, real and, um, and, and often unspoken, um, but like it, there is a way that connection happens, I think through play that builds trust and rapport that I think helps humans thrive. So when I was thinking about schools and how recess felt like this sort of unsafe chaos that I sort of was describing, I thought that, that would have been so hard for me that, that I needed those moments of connection with others to be healthy and good. And so, um, and so I wanted to make sure that kids had what I got the best parts of sort of my experience of being a kid. Um, but then I think also as a grown up, and especially as a woman of a certain age leading organizations, like I was pretty clear that a huge part of what made me effective as an executive was my understanding of when to shine as a star but when to focus on the assist and to really celebrate and promote the success of others um, and that the power of collaboration and, and, and just understanding um, just how to sort of navigate our messy interdependence. And so 
I think it's been a very, like, I'm not an academic, you know, like that's not where this, my understanding of play came from. I have, I am super nerdy. And so <laughs> having this intuitive sort of interest in it and belief and, and personal experience, I've then done a lot of reading to, to try and understand what academics think about why this is true, um, which all of which I take with a grain of salt. But um, I, I do, um, it, it has been largely predicated on personal experience. Jill, you, you talk about um, the differences that you saw from when, you know, when you were a kid and when you were growing up and how hyperactive you were and that you needed, that you that was what you looked forward to the most was playtime, as we call it in the UK, or recess. Um, um, I, but for some of our listeners, myself maybe included, um, uh, who are quite young and that, all we know is kind of what we've experienced in the last 10 mm. years at school and, and you know, um, we don't know how our parents kind of saw playtime or recess. What are the key, like key differences that you would see that you could say, this is how it was in my time and this is yeah. what I'm seeing now, which is what I don't really like or which I think could yeah. potentially be dangerous? Yeah, I think, I mean, I joke a little, we, we live in this uh, world right now where the, you know, and I think it's important to say, first off, um, the experiences um, are not monolithic, right? I think in the United States, what I'm most familiar with, right? There's, there's a big difference across class and how things roll out and economics have a huge impact on who has access to get to play. Um, I will say that when I was a kid, um, growing up in a middle-class family in Washington, DC, I, by, by today's standards, I was raised by wolves. Like I was, I was allowed to, we ran outside unsupervised in these mixed age groups of kids. Mm -hmm. And I remember like, there was like Amy Hanks and like, I remember these kids, like I remember both their names, their first and last names and, you know, and uh, anyway, uh, and, and we would do stuff that was pretty sketchy. Like we would like climb into the sewers and we played like foxes and hounds and, and kick the can and games, you know, until dusk. And then, you know, we would disperse. Um, and anyway, having that kind of mixed age interaction really unsupervised where kids were navigating the rules and the older kids were passing down an understanding about how you resolve conflicts and how you even out teams and self-handicap, all that kind of pretty like nuanced human interaction. That then, were, those were transferable skills we brought with us to school. And so at recess, break time, um, we were out there and we had a, a fairly understanding get an understanding about how to navigate a structure that afforded us chances to play together. What we see now is that kids just have fewer and fewer opportunities to play outside of school in these unstructured, unsupervised um, kind of ways. Um, and, it, and it then plays out on, on, at, school, at, at, at school, at break time in the school. So they don't come with the same understanding about like, oh, you know, Jill and Jim, you, you got rock, paper, scissors to decide who goes first. Or, you know, um, Jim, you and Seb switch sides to even the teams out. Like that, that doesn't happen without um, grownups kind of sort of suggesting it in ways. And, and what's funny in America and this, I, um, and I think this is true internationally, but we're in this like profound moment of political polarization where even play has become sort of, uh, a proxy issue for 
political divides. And so I have been called a recess fascist by the left, where they think that I, uh, we should have completely unadulterated, no, you know, there should be no, you know, grown up involvement whatsoever. And I've been called a vanguard of the Obama nanny state by the right, where they think children should just be left to like throw rocks at each other. I mean, like, it's, it's crazy town. And the vast majority of humans fall somewhere in the middle and think, you know what, no, no, no. We want to create enough structure, but always with an eye towards turning it over to the kids so that they can own it and be drivers of their own playtime, which hopefully then leads to them being drivers of their own education. Mm. I have two questions. Um, the first one would be, I think maybe Jim and I, maybe the last generation where like we would just go out the house and you'd have, uh, I'm not sure if the phrase exists in America, but you would just knock on where yeah. you would just like knock over, knock onto your friend's house and be like, is Jim allowed to play out? And you just yeah. like, hopefully right. he's, he's done his homework or whatever and his parents let him play. Yeah. And then like you said, we all know that we could play till a certain hour or whatever, and then we'd all come back home. But even my sister who is uh, six years younger than me, so she's now she's now 20, but she she didn't have that experience when she grew up. So there's only six years difference in us when we were both growing up, obviously, but she didn't, she was much more, uh, you know, would play inside with her own, you know, whatever, her own dolls or play whatever dates. it was. Well, the yeah, play dates, the play dates, one of the most yeah, god-awful things ever. <laughs> exactly. And so what I wonder is, I'm sure there'll be people listening to this nostalgically, like thinking back about, oh, reminiscing on what it was like back then when all the kids on the estate would play out. But now that that's not the case, is there any way that that can be reintroduced? I mean, I don't know how, how do you save that? How do you bring it back from the dead? Well, so two things. One, I'm always like, so first off, at any time nostalgia starts to creep in, I'm always like, ooh, per check that. Because like yeah. nostalgia is usually a little problematic, right? So yeah. I, I think there's also like, I don't know if you, like Margaret Atwood, the novelist, and she has this sort of very chilling novel, Cat's Eye, in which she describes more of the era that I was a kid in and kids could be cruel. Like, I don't mean mm. to like gloss over, like this, it was not all like, you know, unicorns and, you know, marshmallows. It wasn't like totally joy, joy. So I, I don't wanna like over glamorize, like it was not without its problems. That said, um, there are some really cool initiatives. Um, there's, uh, there's Lenore Skenazy is in the US and she's this fascinating um, person who came to some fame because she allowed her nine-year-old, then nine-year-old son to ride the New York subway unsupervised. And it was brought to the authorities, the attention of the authorities and like their child protective services was called in for like this act of neglect. And people were like, oh yeah, that's terrible. Or people were like, are you kidding? Like a nine-year-old can totally ride the subway. That's like, she's taught him how to do it. This is not, a, and anyway, it was an interesting moment. Um, she started something along with this really amazing uh, play philosopher, academic Peter Gray called the Let Grow Project. And the Let Grow Project is kind of a fascinating thing to check out. They, they have a, they do a bunch of different activities, but one thing they do is uh, this activity where um, it's usually run by a classroom teacher and the kids in the class, um, you know, second, third graders come up with an idea for an activity that they want to do that they're not usually allowed to do. Like could be ride their bike to the store or cook using open flame and knives, you know, imagine some kind of activity that there's some inherent risk or, you know, clean the skylights on the roof, <laughs> I don't know, whatever, whatever it is that they want to do, intrinsically motivated to do, but that they're 
their their gut is that their parents would have their family, whoever's you know, in charge of caring for them, would have some reservations about. They then propose this activity to the to the adult, the responsible adult, the parent or the guardian, and then there, there's a negotiation process, and um, and it's very thoughtful, and um, and then ultimately they do it and they report back on how it went and what happens. And it's interesting. One of the things Lenore said to me that I just found fascinating was that often um, the kids totally take it in stride and it's sort of a not anticlimactic but it's it's cool thing they do it is the the parents who experience it as the most like oh wow i was so freaked out and like this was such a big deal for me and it was such a good reminder that my my child has so much capacity that i don't necessarily allow them to exercise and I would just say that, like, I, I try to write about this in this in my book about, I think, one of the great um, sort of paradoxes of play, right, is that um, the way that we learn to mitigate and navigate and manage risk is by taking risks. So you can't just mm-hmm. do the metaphorical equivalent of putting foam on all the corners of everything. You have to let kids bump their heads like that's how we learn and so um and it's it's hard for schools right we live in litigious societies like that's not how it works like they're supposed to be managing the hell out of risks right and so it's a it's a it's a really intense tension Mm, yeah the other question that i had was when you were talking about you know for example um uh, you know, imagine if you guys were at school, you would know how to, you know, let's level up the teams because this isn't fair or so on and so forth. And there might be some people listening and going, what's the big deal? The kids don't know how to do that because they haven't learned it, learned it in the backyard out in the open when there's no one, you know, monitoring them. So what? They'll learn it sooner or eventually, or even if they don't learn it, really, what's the big deal? And I just wanted to know in your research, in your opinion, like what are the ramifications of kind of not learning that behavior, not understanding um, things that you took for granted as a child that you just learn in terms of like in the adult world when they grow up or how does that become something that we go, oh crap, that that was really not something good and uh, <laughs> yeah. kind of learn the hard way, they would actually yeah. be way better now. Or... Yeah, well, I and mean, that is exactly the work of Playworks, right? That, and for me, um, I always, I joke a lot like, um, you know, I've now over my career employed lots and lots of people I've never let any, I've never fired anyone because they weren't good at taking a standardized test in some ways. I have fired people because they couldn't get along with other people, right? So, I mean, I think the, this is how we learn how to, to get along, how to function in groups, how to, and I, and I, I would offer, um, Stuart Brown has been a real mentor for me and he wrote the book Play and I, I'll talk a little more about his research in a second, but he was the one who first pointed out to me that when you think about play as this behavior that has lasted over, you know, for eons, right? And the fact that play has survived evolution despite being a risky behavior, like that's a huge big deal. Like evolution does not favor behaviors that are risky unless they have some kind of real good payout. Like, like, and I think the payout from play is that we learn how to, to function and get along as grownups. And, you can, you can see that in, in research around animals. Like there's all this amazing research around like wolf pups and wolf pups, if, if they're not allowed to, as, as pups interacting with other pups, learn how to, you know, fake play fight and do all that stuff. And 
they can't function as part of a pack when they're older wolves like that it just doesn't work right and and they and wolves have to function as a pack to survive right and i think mm. we have to function as a pack to survive as well and i i would offer that this current moment um, our social media, the way that leaders are behaving or not behaving. Um, I, I would say that there's a certain play deficit that seems to be sort of surfacing in, in a lot of how people are treating one another. I also mentioned Stuart Brown, and this is a super extreme case, but Stuart initially got involved in doing research around play because he was studying um, people who'd been involved in really violent um, mass mass murders. He, he was, there was the, the Texas Tech shooter, and he was looking into his personal psychological history, this guy who kind of went nuts and shot a bunch of people. And it turned out that he'd actually um, not been allowed to play at all as a kid. His, he'd had a very dominating father who'd prevented him from really interacting with other kids and playing at all. And so um, Stewart then did this pretty wild survey looking at people with a violent history. And the prevalence of play deficit in for these people, it, it's pretty, it's pretty damning. Wow. Um, <laughs> I, I, I guess to to follow up on on humans suffering or <clears throat> as a result of something lacking in play, I thought something was very interesting. I read in your book how you talked about very often in school we we describe certain behavior as bad behavior and if we kind of pick at the surface of this it seems like this kid probably just wants some attention you kind of posited that actually maybe it's attention sake it's actually kind of a, a connection that they're looking for and maybe that they're not getting it elsewhere and i wonder could you like unpack that a little bit and then yeah do you see this um do you see this play out with the kind of social media attention yeah. craze yeah. culture we live in? Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really made that connection. I, I was super inspired by um, the work of Nadine Burke Harris. Um, and Nadine was really one of the sort of doctors who initially brought a lot of attention to uh, the concept of ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, and then trauma-informed responses to, to how we... Um, educate people, but also like how we just, how we build the world to, to acknowledge that people have had these adverse experiences that affect their ability to, to really function. Um, and she's, she's now the Surgeon General for California, and she's just super inspiring. And she has a couple of books that are just, she's, she's amazing. Um, but I was really struck by, um, she came out to visit the Playworks program once in action and said, you know, if you were designing a program that was you know, built to be responsive to the needs of kids who've experienced a lot of trauma, it would look a lot like Playworks because um, we really go to extra lengths to make sure that kids um, have choice and voice in, in what's happening around them and what they're doing, that, um, that their expectations that we, we were super conscientious about how you handle transitions, which is where for people who've like if, you, if you're not feeling like in control of the world around you, transitions can be super um, ungluing, right? And so how do you actually like, when we go into a transition with a group of kids, we're always like, okay, what we're gonna do, just setting expectations and then 
narrating the transition as we get through it and then calling out and delineating. Okay, now we're out on the schoolyard. Now what we're gonna do is this. And then um, you'll hear a signal. And when you hear the signal, you're gonna stop and then we'll transition back. Like doing it um, just very intentionally, right? And uh, so with the, with the trauma-informed stuff and with kids and, and bad behaviors, um, what we kept seeing was that they were just kids who wanted attention. And that um, when, like, especially when we'd come into a playground and the principal would say, oh, there are these three kids, often boys, but not always, three kids who were just always getting in trouble. We would um, put them in charge of helping with the little kids. And like, it was amazing the extent to which that almost immediately would like completely turn things around. Um, and, and it's, and I'm also super empathic about the grown-ups involved because if you're out on a schoolyard or you're in a classroom and kids are not behaving in a cooperative way and they're being kind of disruptive or, or just kind of like icky, you know, like, and it's okay as a mom to say that I think my kid's being icky. As a teacher, you're never supposed to say that they're being icky because they're kids, but they're humans and they can be icky, which doesn't mean they're bad people. It just means they're being icky. Anyway, it, it doesn't bring out the best in grownups responding, right? And, and you feel threatened and they're questioning your authority and everything about it is like, just like built for a vicious negative cycle of ickiness. <laughs> so, and, and stepping out of that and like being the human that's like, whoo, we're gonna like let that go and we're gonna hold on. Let me like, you know, Jim, let me talk with you in a second. Let's get the rest of the kids learning. And then I'm gonna come back and I'm, I got you, Jim. I'm like, I'm gonna see the best in you no matter what you do. Like there's a, there's a, there's a commitment there that it, admittedly, if you're in charge of recess, you're in a much better position to get to make that commitment. If you're a classroom teacher and you're tasked with getting all these kids from point A to point B academically, it's hard to carve out the space to deal with the one kid who's kind of feeling unseen and unheard and like they want to control the situation, even if that means bringing it down around them. Mm. I'm sure you're familiar that in, in Finland, they, they don't start school officially on mm -hmm. and that before then they kind of have like supervised play. I wonder, would you like? Does your does your gut want to say that potentially this is leading to uh, a more um, community driven, um, better dialogue situation in other countries? Well, I definitely think um, more play is better. Like I, I always joke when I'm a, I mentioned I'm a mom, and people because I like lead this national organization around people people ask for parenting advice. And I'm always like, oh, no, no, I offer no parenting advice because that will lead to my children becoming meth addicts almost inevitably. I'm like, no, not going there. But I do often, like if really pressed, I will say, yeah, I think in general, you wanna go with more sleep, more you know, water and more play and less sugar. Those, those would be my like general parenting advices. They also happen to be my like, how to be like a happier grown up advice too. So like, they're not un unrelated. So. I think more play um, for little kids, for high school students, for college students, for grad students and adults in the workplace, for senior, I think in general, more play would be better. Like, so full stop. Um, and I do think we often um, start things like 
academics, like the push to get kids reading earlier and earlier. There's there's so much to be like question, like we do literacy before numeracy first here. Like, does that really make any sense? Like, so um, there's a lot of things about how education has been built. And, you know, it was built for the, the current state was built for an industrial society to create factory workers, right? At least in the West. Um, so I, I think uh, COVID's been obviously tragic in so many ways. I, I, I think there's some, my Pollyanna self can't help but hope that there are ways in which um, it, it raises questions about what, what actually works for kids and for families mm. and, for, um, and for teachers and for educators more generally. So um, this is a moment where I think questioning it, like how we structure it and we've, well, we, we've always done that that way, but the world has changed dramatically. So does that still really make that much sense? All of that said, in the US, every time someone says, well, in Finland, they do this, every, there's a lot of eye rolling that happens. So I'm always, you have to like take yeah. that with a grain of salt too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, what's coming up here and you speak and after reading your book, it's kind of like, we have such good intentions, right? We just want the kids to be able to read at an earlier age. We just want this. We just want that. And kind of like you were talking about how not too long ago, we just wanted to create a society of work, of certain workers. And maybe we're kind of losing track of, or we haven't asked ourselves, like you said, after after this kind of massive pause for many people to go, right, do we want to build a society where people can get really these tests and really good at you know relaying information and these things or do we want to build a society where people can communicate with each other and they can have fun and they can there can be a leader and it's not like the leader is this kind of egomaniac the leader actually cares about other people in, in the community or in the tribe or in the team you know yeah I, no, I think that's a, I think that's the right question, and I think um, you know parenting young adults has been super, especially in this moment, right? Like it's been um, it's been hard. Like in some ways, like I, I long for having parenting little kids where sort of it was hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Like okay, I can deal with one of those, but and maybe it's not that different for young adults, but it feels more complex at least. And I, at one point, was saying to my daughter that I really wanted her to be happy. And she pushed back, you know, like she, she wants, I think she wants some ease and she wants to feel like she has agency in her life. But I think she felt almost um, not oppressed by like the sort of, um, like the, the, the pressure to be happy felt like too much for her sometimes. And so I just have, like, I, I do think, um, I think when I, as a parent, when I think about what I want, which then like sort of leads directly to sort of how I think about schools and what we build to help other parents and other families find what they want for their kids. Um, I think I ultimately want our education system to be oriented towards helping kids find themselves and find the thing that um, gives their lives meaning and helps them establish connection with others and um, ultimately just uh, just um, sparks a, a love of, of learning. Thanks for that. Before we move on to adults in play, 
there was a there was another uh, a little quote that you had that I loved and you said that play reminds us that it matters how it feels. I wonder if you could talk a little bit. Yeah. I uh I say that often and I think and actually when I you you had mentioned you were gonna ask me that question and it was good because I'm like, oh I should think about, you know, you say things sometimes so many times and like, oh, I haven't really thought about why I initially said that and what I meant. Um, so I, I will step back. Defining play is one of those slightly um, weird things. It's not as obvious as, and there's, there's, a, um, there's sort of a spectrum of how people define play. Um, I like the definition, any activity undertaken for no apparent purpose. But um, not everyone's totally comfortable with that. But I sort of like that there's, it, it has to be voluntary. Um, often when you're doing it, you get lost in the sort of experience and like, it's sort of like um, Chick Set Me High's sort of sense of flow that you're just kind of, it's, it, it's all consuming in that way. Um, but so I think, uh, so when, it, when you're doing something where it's not defined by the outcome. Like it's not like driving to like Belfast and you're going to get there and then you've, you've been successful. It's just like being in the car. <laughs> um, then if you're not focused on an outcome, it does allow you to shift perspective to really focus on being in the present and paying attention to what is true in this present moment and what you're authentically experiencing right now. And so I think um, that when I say that play reminds us that it matters how it feels, you can do two, uh, two identical things, but um, depending on how they feel, they're radically different um, activities. And I think being reminded of our intention and um, our attitudes and how, how we feel about the things we get to do um, and choose to do and have to do, um, that, that, that is the difference between a life that feels like uh, meaningful and engaging and one that feels, can feel oppressive and um, disconnected from, from your values. Do you think that we are somewhat separated from quote unquote how it feels as a society? Yeah, no, I don't think there's so many ways in which um, we're set up to sort of numb out and and not um, and not feel like right like and like I, it was, I know I love that this podcast really does have an emphasis on on self care and mental well being and I was thinking just in advance of having the conversation with you about the things I do to take care of my own mental well being and 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 you started with the the question what's the crack and like and this may be, I remember that as being sort of a slogan from Guinness, but maybe that's not true. Like I felt like, I, so I, and as a former rugby player, I like an occasional beer, but I'm also one of the things I do to like take care of my own mental health is like, check myself. Like, am I, am I having a glass of red wine to transition from work to cooking dinner as a way to numb out? Or am I, you know, like, and I just, mm. we are a little bit set up that way um, to not, to power through and to, you know, and just in, and in the U.S., we have this Horatio Alger myth about pulling ourselves up by the bootstrap, and you like persist. and And I've I, I I hold persistence as a as a personal value, and yet like I I do um, try to remind myself to 
check myself. Am I persisting just to persist? And, and what am I actually feeling in this moment? And, and how might I stay present with that and make very intentional decisions about how to respond to the moment? And I, I will say too, like I, I opened the conversation by saying, you asked how I was and I said, I'm, I'm worried about the Ukraine. Everything we're set up to like not notice, like, right? Like, and I don't know about the news as much there in Northern Ireland, but like here, like it's in the news, but like it's, but it's right next to like what happened at the NBA All-Star game or like, you know, like, and so it's, there's just like, I, I, will, I, I feel like I want us to remember and pay attention to how it feels. And sometimes that's joyful and sometimes that's sorrowful. And, and they're, they're both, they need each other to coexist. I'm really glad you brought up that point about persisting. Or <clears throat> I saw something I read recently and it says along the lines of um, just because we can endure doesn't mean you have to endure. And uh, like re very recently, I quit doing jujitsu, which is a sport that from the outside I loved to watch. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do it. And then I signed up to it and it just didn't quite fill the cup the way I wanted to. But because I'd signed up, I put my name down, I play, I pay my monthly thing. It comes out every month. I didn't want to feel like we have this stigma with quitting, don't we, in this in, mm -hmm. in our culture where it's just like, I didn't want to feel like a quitter. But then every time I'd have to leave the house to go to jujitsu, I was like, oh, I'm dreading it. And it wasn't one of, you know, I, like, I, I'm getting back into my running now. And people say, oh, yeah, you'll dread running for the first two weeks. It's horrible. But then once you get fit again, you really get that run as high and you start to love it again. Mm -hmm. And I never got that from jujitsu. I never came back home yeah. and was like, I'm really glad I went to that lesson. I just came back going, I'm glad I didn't quit, like, like a pride yeah. thing. But I never was like, oh, that was really good. I'm really yeah. happy I went. And so I eventually was like, what am I doing? Like you said, I had to check myself. And I was like, yeah. who am I trying to prove? I'm trying to prove it to myself. So what I'm going to do, do, get to black belt just to prove that like I'm not a quitter. Like it's just a ridiculous premise. Yeah. And I actually think, you know, quitting, learning when to quit, learning how to say no, like yeah. those are among the most valuable things. And like, you know, and I, Seth Godin is a, a business sort of guru in the US and he writes, and he has this great thing about, he compares, there's like, there's the, the cul-de-sac and the dip and or, or the dead end and the, and the dip. And he said, the, the thing about quitting is that when you're in a cul-de-sac and you're in a dead end, like quitting is the absolute right thing to do. But what, if it's a, but you have to learn to discern, like, are you just in a dip? Yeah. In which case, like, if you persist a little, it's going to get better. Like, and I, yeah. I think that's a, I think that's one of the gifts of, of mm. wisdom and maturing and, and like just making your way through that becomes more and more clear. But I, I think the, the well executed quit is a powerful, wonderful, yeah, good thing. For sure. For sure. <laughs> uh, cut your losses. We want to destigmatize the well executed quit. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to bring this conversation forward. You mentioned, um, obviously, that you've done uh, work as well in adult play. And to some people, that might sound almost <laughs> like How do those two things uh, coincide? Obviously, we understand what play means in, a, in an infant sense, in a child sense. We've all gone through it at some stage, or at least we've seen others go through it if you haven't been allowed to by your parents. But even, I'll, I'll be honest myself, even myself, I don't really understand play in terms of you know, uh, the adult world, just because I think maybe a lot of us might co um, conflate it with sport, doing sport and maintaining sports. But like you said, 
when we I like your definition of play where it's something voluntary and there's sometimes it's to no end. And I, yeah. sport doesn't fall into that category because you are trying to beat someone or you're trying to score points or if you're running, you're trying to get fit, you know, whatever it may be. So I don't think whilst there may be kind of parallel, I don't think they kind of are the same thing. So what in your like in your mind, what does play mean in the adult world? Yeah, well, so I think, um, again, it's this uh, an activity undertaken for no apparent purpose. And I think the apparent is the key sort of thing. So I've done a lot of sort of corporate trainings um, and work where play can be something as basic as like when you start a meeting, you start it with a sort of checking question, which invites everyone to show up in their three dimensional full selves um, and like, so one of my favorite checking questions was what, what was the first concert you ever attended? And doing that at the beginning of a finance committee meeting can feel like, you know, people are like, what? But I've, I've like, in fact, and one of the examples I use is like, I did, I was um, doing a training with a school board, um, in a, 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 you know, it's a, it's the parent group that's mm-hmm. sort of the governing body, right? And there were, it was known that there were these two school board members who really could not stand one another and when they, we did the check-in question, what was the first concert you attended? They went around and they introduced themselves. And these two people who really disdain, like oozed after, towards each other, they both, Earth, Wind & Fire had both been their first concert. And there was this moment where like, you could just see like, like suddenly this person that this other person had like hated was just a little more of a three-dimensional human with something in common that just, I mean, they didn't, they didn't like hold, go off into the sunset holding hands. It wasn't a dramatic, like, I don't mean to like oversell this, but just that slight moment of consciousness that like, oh, I might have something in common with you. That, 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 that's, a, that's an example, a very light example of adults playing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I also, we talk a lot about, you know, um, there's a lot around team building and icebreakers and they can be done in ways just like you can get kids to play together where kids don't feel like they have a lot of agency or they, they're not super, they didn't choose the games. I think there are ways to introduce play in ways that help build trust and rapport among grownups, help them get to know each other, um, help them just do activities that light, bring a little light and levity to to sit, you know, to work situations that can be kind of intense. And then through nonverbal communications, the stuff that I was talking about at the very beginning, that when I was a kid, I found so reassuring as a way to feel seen and connected to others. Introducing those kinds of activities into the workplace um, or any other kind of association where grownups have to figure out how to collaboratively get from point A to point B. Um, but that's, that's, kind of what I'm talking about by adult play. I, the one other thing I would say too, is that you were saying how the concept of adult play feels like, oh, I mean, I'll tell you, in America, you look at who gets to play as grownups, often white men, like off playing golf, like there's a certain, if you look at who gets to play, there's often a pr- fairly good map of who has power. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I, I was thinking, do you, do you find, um, <clears throat> 
you know, when you like the thing with like adulthood, which I'm, I'm, I struggle to call myself an adult, but I mean, I guess maybe by <laughs> numerical value, I'm kind of. I like grown up. I like grown yeah. up. Than <laughs> Even that sounds, yeah, but I, I guess I'm technically an adult by governmental yeah. standards, but <laughs> like, I, it's, it seems to me that just being an adult just means having more and more responsibilities. Um, and, like, you know, when I look to my parents and stuff, it just seems like it's just like a, a, a cumulative amount of responsibilities as the years go on when you get kids yeah. and so on you get a mortgage and blah 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 and I wonder do you ever find <clears throat> when talking to adults if they if there's a certain almost uh intrinsic or inbuilt guilt in playing or in taking the time out to you know to play or to indulge in an activity which you can't really by any metric or by any standard metric be like, Oh, that's very beneficial. You know, like yeah. for example, because I, I think a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of adults, they look after their kids. They do the best they can for their kids. They have a very hectic job. And then if they can, they'll try and squeeze in a gym session. Right. 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 And then it's like, but they just don't have any more bandwidth or time. And they might feel even, and even if they did have time, feel guilty to be like, I used to love painting. And you know what, or I used to love pottery or whatever. And like, I'm going to go back into that. But then they feel like maybe by doing that, they're neglecting a certain responsibility that they have to, you know, quote unquote, achieve, fulfill as the responsible adult that we're all expected to be. Yeah, I mean, so yes, definitely. Like, um, definitely feel like, often people just feel like I don't have time. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I will often, I will push back on that. I will like say, well, how much television did you watch this week? Or like, how much time did you spend on social media? Like, you know, on, on some level, I, I lead with empathy. Yes, we all feel completely overwhelmed. Um, and I would be also like, and nobody's going to take care of you uh, other than you at this point. As a grown up, that's one of the real bummers is there's nobody designated necessarily to take care of you except yourself. So I'm like a little, like a little tough love on that. So yes, I definitely hear that. And I, and, and often, especially for folks who are working multiple jobs and just like, that is totally justified. And, and there's no, I don't mean to guilt anyone who like legitimately doesn't have the time like that. That is real for a lot of people. So that, that is true. And we make choices. And I think making good choices can really, um, you know, make a difference. Um, for the like the super busy work people who like um who like i'm too busy at work i'm you know i work 14 hour days like I, I think that's just i flat out just disagree and i think you know i don't know if you know um it's kahneman and tversky who wrote um going slow to go fast you know that whole thing i think it's tversky who you know won the nobel prize and is famous for sort of saying something to the effect of um years have been lost because of the unwillingness to to lose hours and there's there's a lot of research that suggests that actual creativity is um is really fostered and and nourished by being somewhat underemployed that being busy 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 is actually not a spark for innovation um mm. all of that set aside too i will just tell you from um you know you you all could be my kids like as far as age wise at, at 57 what I've found from both my peers as well as friends who are older than I am, you also don't feel that different when you're, I mean, I feel like I hate to tell you this because like everybody keeps hoping that like you're going to pass through some magic portal and suddenly feel like a grown up. And like, yeah. I don't feel that different than I did when I was 12. Um, and so, um, 
I, I, I am, I am, I have a mortgage. I have humans that I'm responsible for making sure that their college tuition is paid for. I have employees. I have those things. And yet I still basically feel a lot like I did when I was the crossing guard in sixth grade, making sure that, you know, I could put on my orange, you know, neon thing and help people cross the street. It just, um, I, I just, it, it doesn't change as much as you might hope from your vantage point at 26. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I think the realization might come in handy, but also I think there's also a, a broader point there maybe that like, you know, you said you feel like you're very similar to your 12 year old self. Maybe there's a thing of not to drown out that inner child not to yeah. drown out that, you know, yearning for creativity or yearning for playtime, which as a child is just completely normal and no loving parent or adult would, no, you cannot do that. That is wrong to want to play. But yet when we turn into adulthood, it becomes this thing of like, again, silly and we fetishize this thing of like having three hours sleep and working 21 hours, you know, this nonsense that you hear that we're obviously trying to like grenade and go back on. But like it is this massive, especially at our age, it's like, oh, you have to work through your 20s, smash it out. And then by the time you're 30, you'll be a billionaire and you can just forget about it all. But it's like this weird thing where we fetishize not taking care of ourselves as like a kind of um, way of like monitoring our success. And anyone who maybe does take a step back, who does like chill out, you know, I live in Spain, I've moved to Spain. If you talk to the British about how they see the Spaniards, they see them as like these lazy good for nothings. You mm -hmm. talk about like the Spaniards, how they see the British, they're like, these guys just work till they die and then they don't have any time to enjoy it. So what's the point? I'm just gonna sit here in the beer, in the sun and have a nice beer with my mates and I'll enjoy the time that I've got, you know? And it's like this weird dichotomy of, of how we yeah. see the world. I would say too, you know, and you bring up sleep and how, like, I think it's really interesting. Like. I always feel like that's always a red, if you hear, it's a red flag. If you hear people saying, oh, we don't need sleep. We don't need play. The science of sleep and the science of play have some really interesting parallels as these sort of very essential alter, sort of alternative states of consciousness that actually, I think, contribute to um, our kind of wakeful consciousness in, in, in the real world kind of. And I, I think, I, I just love the thinking about the parallels between sleep and play and its importance to us as humans. I, I got really into researching sleep and it has just kind of changed, <laughs> changed a lot how I look at it, how I consider it. And I notice it now, like almost now when I'm around, but I just go, do you get enough sleep? You know, <laughs> I can really kind of yeah. feel it in the room, right? You can totally see it with kids in school too. Like you can tell which kids didn't get enough sleep and how, and like, and like the relationship with like having breakfast and like all those things. And like, and, and then it's as far as physical health, not getting enough sleep and it's connection to obesity and, and not, you know, it's what the whole, like we are one whole system and like we treat it as these very siloed parts and it's, it's so destructive to our well-being. I, I will say it's been an interesting, like having a, um, my, my youngest son is um, a senior in high school. And so for the last couple of years of dealing with high school, he's been doing it in this virtual world. And he got to sleep in and he was just, he's growing a lot. And like, like the other kids, when they had to go off to high school early in the morning and they were just dragging and like, they hated it. And like nothing about how high school was set up seem designed at all for their biological clocks. Anders is like, 
in COVID thrived at least from a like how his sleep and, and the patterns of when he needs to pay attention and getting to do some of his schoolwork asynchronously. It just, it was interesting to watch, like obviously not perfect. It would have been better for him to, I think, to be in school with his mates, you know, but that said, um, it was the, the schedule part was like, Ooh. <laughs> yeah. The, the school timetable is dictated a lot more by the average adults um, yeah. starting time than whether the kids can get enough sleep and practice yeah. before yeah. they go. Yeah. But um, so I have to admit that the reason why I came across your work was about two months ago, I was chatting with my mate and Earl, and he lives with his partner. And he said to me, he said, hey, like, man, I'm just having a fun deficiency here you know there's just not a lot of fun and it really got me thinking because he's he's he's, he's quite a, a deep 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 thinker and for him to say that made me think yeah there, there's there's a lot just having fun and then i got thinking like in the society that we live in particularly besides drinking alcohol <laughs> when can we have fun like i don't think i've I like I mean maybe I have but I can't recall a time where I had adults like quite excited saying yeah it was just so much fun and it was like during the day and there was no drink involved there was no drugs involved it was just yeah we just had loads of fun you know yeah. and I just think what would it look like if we had that you know yeah I think it's I I, I love the question and I think it's um and, and it makes me think like and I also, for me, it overlaps. Like for me, being outside is a, a little bit of that, like that kind of connection to like awe and marvel and like, oh my God, it, it, we live in this beautiful place. And like, like, like there's a, there's a joyfulness and a sort of a quality of like elation and delight. Like, I think like, and some, and sometimes going after fun feels a little like, um, I like delight too. Like, like, and I think you can find delight in art museums and at a concert and like, you know, the, the delight's an interesting one. It's a, it, it's a spark. Um, but I think it is that like, when you describe fun and the way you're just kind of like, oh, it was so much fun. Like, what does it mean to be like really alive and really mm. present and like, and just, just like overwhelmed with like gratitude for an experience, um, right? And I just, and I, and, and I think, you know we're 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 a complicated mammal right and i think different humans find it in different ways um like for some people it's travel like I, you know i i'm a giant basketball fan i was recently you know at, at, at the golden state warriors are my local team that i care desperately about and like i was at a game and like everyone's masked and you know and uh, clay thompson who was a player who'd been out injured for two years came back and like, and we're like this incredibly diverse group of humans mixed in age and race and size and gender and all these different, all the various isms and things. And Clay walks onto the court and the crowd goes nuts in this shared moment of joy for this man who had persisted over two years and in a good way persisted, right? Um, and had come back and like, people were crying and like, like seriously, it was like, and like, it, it, and it was like, 
when you like it was so much fun to be there and it was moving and it was inspiring and and I was part of something bigger than myself and mm. and Clay must I mean, he must have been that must, what a weird experience to be like this guy right like that he had created this moment for all these tens of thousands of people like I, anyway I I think those opportunities exist um, but it almost brings us full circle to back to where we were starting about the importance of the small acts. Like you have to show up to, you have to be willing to like go do something. Like, I don't think that kind of joy that so much fun happens, like checking your Twitter feed. I, I think it can happen playing kind of cool Minecraft games. I think people get derived real. I'm not going to be the, I'm, I don't, I think video games can be super fun and playful. And I think, you know, multiplayer games are it's kind of amazing and the technology is cool. And like, um, I think I am a big fan of, you know, analog, real time human interaction. I like, but like this conversation with you, like totally enjoyable, new humans I've never met before having a conversation, like how lucky are we? Um, mm. Like, I, so I, I think it's saying yes and seeing open doors and being willing to walk through them and try new things, but to show up and be present. And I think, um, and it's been hard with the pandemic, right? Like everything about the pandemics, like sort of orient us towards saying, no, like I shouldn't go do that. I shouldn't go, you know, I, I don't want to get, I don't want to be exposed and potentially get somebody else sick. Like uh, it makes it hard to understand the, the risks and it, it does sort of close us off from one another, but that's hopefully going to change and, um, and, and is changing already. And, um, and maybe it'll make us appreciate it more. I was just thinking as well, as you were talking there and we just previously had spoken about kind of the um, the schedules of high schools, for example, I'm wondering as well, and this is, I've just thought about this now, so forgive me if this is an <laughs> undercooked idea, but um, I was thinking like the difference between kids and adults when it comes to play or fun is that kids all being well if they're in a great environment and stuff kind of get it on the daily you know you've got like you said you have break time throughout school and then as long as you do your homework or whatever um at least back in the day you're allowed to like i said go out into the estate whether it was play football build a den whatever it was and that would be as well monday to friday then obviously you have your weekends as well whereas i feel like just thinking now how most adults spend their time is like right monday to friday is just let's endure Let's get through the week. Uh, and then Saturday and Sunday, maybe we can start to think about, should we go to the cinema or should we go to an art museum? And I was one, and I think maybe this might be a benefit of COVID with people working from home, that they can manage their time better. Is that like, if we could try to exploit the week a bit more and not just kind of dedicate two days of every seven to fun time or to relaxation time. Cause by that time as well, you might be so knackered if you've got a big family and a lot of responsibilities that <laughs> trying to do something fun is just like, I just need to recharge the batteries here. Whereas like maybe we could try to, and I've tried to do it since COVID's happened, like really make the evenings my own, whether that's playing football with my mates or like doing something rather than just coming back. And like you said, going on social media or turning on the TV and just zoning out until the next day where I just have to wait back up and go back into work and do it all over again. Um, and I wonder if that's come across in your research or if you found that like where people try to implement it throughout the week rather, and stagger it maybe, rather than have it like really concentrated in just one or two days. Yeah, for sure. No, and I think um, the research that I think is most relevant to that question is around habit. And we are creatures of habit, right? And like, and you brought up sleep, like you have to intentionally design rituals um, to sort of 
you know, help with sleep and that. And I think one of the things about play, right, is it play is kind of one of the ways we learn to deal with rituals and rules and referees. And so creating rituals that you bake into your week um, that promote play and like that's that's how you do it. But you have to you have to do it. You have to be intentional. It has to be um, designed um, as part of your life. And what I think what people find is when you actually take agency about how your time when you can right again again acknowledging that for some people economics makes this actually almost impossible but for those of us who can right if you have that level of privilege um designing a life where um play is infused more generally um it has these sort of it creates a, a virtuous cycle where you are more present and more effective in your work relationships, in parenting, you, you have fewer conflicts, you are, you have the, um, the bandwidth and the, and the resilience to address challenges when they arise. It's, it, it, it is the difference between a, a virtuous and a vicious cycle, I think. Jill. Jill, I also think we've succeeded in coming full circle in the sense of talking about awareness as well like you mentioned being at the basketball game or this conversation that we're having right now and how enjoyable it is and and how lucky it is that we can have this and i couldn't help but think that so often people are are, are so plugged into the next thing that they have to do and then tomorrow morning i have this presentation or then i have to have this deadline or and then i have to collect the kids and da, da, that we can never almost like a, people feel like Oh, I can't actually just check in here and then just kind of look around and just feel how I feel right now. Um, and, and I would, I mean, this is just the lens that I see it through. Like you were saying how if someone can expose themselves to some fun during the week that all, all of a sudden other things aren't so, um, and it just reminded me about meditation as well, where it's like, if, if you can meditate for like a certain time during the day, you're never too far away from that moment where you kind of had like a sense, like a deeper sense of you. Right. And when you're, when you're playing, when you're having fun, you also have this kind of, Oh, like, Oh, kind of consuming sense of presence. Right. Yeah. And no, I, 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 often, I, I totally, I talk about this. Like often when I do, when I'll give a talk, I'll start the talk off by playing a quick sort of silly pointless game, but I do it to point out that when you're playing this game, you're not actually thinking about your grocery list or, Oh, I have to remember to pick the kids up at five or like plays. Like it's, a, it's incredibly all consuming, even the most pointless silly games. But I'll tell you, like, I used to think when I just like, like playing basketball, you set a pick, and then you're rolling, you're not thinking about, like literally that's consuming in a way that is, so I, I actually, I meditate every morning for like 20 minutes. Um, and I often have, have laughed that I'm far less present when I'm meditating and sitting on the, on the cushion, like my brain is pinging all over the place. Sometimes I have, you know, 14 or 15 full consecutive seconds of actually being present, but largely my brain is pinging. Whereas when I'm playing a game, um, 
I really like have sort of large swaths of time where I am thinking about nothing but what is happening in that present moment. And I, I mean, I'm a better, I think I'm better at playing than I am at meditating, but you know, it's, it's, we're all on our own personal path. It, it brings to mind, uh, we have a, a recurring guest, one of the guru the, uh, of the podcast, um, Adam Starr. And I said something very similar. I was like, I can't, I just feel like I can't meditate. It's like the minute I sit down is that's when all the voices start coming to me. Um, but I was like, I was saying like you, like I love playing football. And when I'm playing football, I don't even know my name. I'm just like playing the game. Do you know what I mean? And then at the end yeah. of it, then we can, and he was like, that is to him. He was saying like, he's a Buddhist. And he was saying, he was like, that's still meditation in a way. It's just that we like to think of it in the Western world of like, like you said, you sit down on a cushion, for 20 minutes you might have the car map on or something like that trying to help you through and that's fine he's like that's one way and maybe that's the most traditional way but he was saying that like whatever it is if it's cooking for you that is all consuming where you're just in that moment nothing else is around you that is meditation of a sort right and that really opened my eyes because it just made me feel like basically less of a shit <laughs> i was like how is everyone meditating i've got a mental health podcast and i can't even sit down for two goddamn minutes to meditate and then when you told me that i was like listen if Kadam adam star says that to me i'm good to go with that so i'll take that with i'll take it to the bank so <laughs> for anyone out there who's listening just, who shares then uh, yeah just, just for clarification he is it as an excuse not to try and meditate? <laughs> he didn't. I took it that way. <laughs> I took it that way. As anyone who knows me knows I'm a big fan of quotes. And just uh, where you were speaking about Jill, the quote that came up this week, meditate to become better meditators. We meditate to be more awake during our lives. And that's almost exactly how you described it, where you're like, at the time I'm struggling and there's thoughts coming left, right and center. But then when I'm actually with my kids or I'm actually doing this, I do feel a bit more present. And I thought that yeah. was nice. Um, so I'm very conscious of your time. I know you're a busy woman. For, for people who are super busy, and like you said, when you're busy, almost creativity is kind of prevented or blocked in some way. And people are listening and saying like, hey, I, I like this idea of play, but I can't even, I can't even think of, okay, what would I, like, how do I form? fun with my girlfriend or how do I play with my my girlfriend or me and my friends like what could, are we me and my work colleagues what could we do is there is there a nice example where you said where you've seen or like oh, okay if I've seen this happen before and this has worked really effectively for adults yeah well so um it's sort of a it's a sort of nerdy unsexy answer to the question but like I'm like you, you gotta schedule it like right so I am like I, I have a, a pretty um, very sort of, I'm very committed to my morning routine. Not everybody's a morning person, but like I get up in the morning before everybody else in my household is up. I um, have my coffee and then I meditate. Like I just want to go on. There's nothing really sort of virtuous about my meditating because it requires caffeine. Um, I then I, um, I, I write for an hour every day because I'm, I'm a writer, but it's for me, it's a very creative process. Um, every day I have, 15 minutes where I make time to draw. I'm terrible. I totally enjoy it. Um, like I, like I, I, so, and I, and then I sketch, I'm, I'm pretty, um, I'm pretty good about scheduling. Like what, when I have a meeting with someone I haven't met before, if it's going to be in person, I often will suggest that we, we do the meeting as a walk. Um, so I, I get outside and, and like, I just, there are ways in which I, um, I just prioritize 
seeing people and you know my kids are older now so like this was harder when I had you know I had to like make sure that I was the one making dinner for everybody every night um but like as it as it as it as you sort of schedule your your days what are the rituals you can build in that normalize and routinize play being infused and you don't have to like it doesn't have to be a long time like recess is actually a great um parallel right like recess is 15 minutes right in the school day it's not like and it, and it makes a world of difference um especially you know especially if you're going to be on like zoom for hours every day baking in scheduling in time putting it in your calendar um but going outside for me like i think that's that would be what i would recommend to people but you ha you have to do it there's not like some like magic pill you can take um you gotta you gotta make it your priority thanks Rachel. seb do you have any more questions before we ask the final one no, I was just going to say that maybe the fi the final one feels slightly null and void <laughs> in just that the final one is uh, how do you take care of your mental health? And um, I feel like throughout this podcast, you've kind of alluded to it, but maybe we'll ask the question anyway, just in case there are any um, tips and tricks that uh, you haven't um, you haven't uh, alluded to that maybe someone could uh, could incorporate into their own schedules. The one thing I wanted to say, which isn't a direct answer to it, but I just, um, it, it's over the years been super important to me that like, um, I've, you know, I've had lots of young people come to work at Playworks or Mocha or, or something, and like, it was their first job. And um, as a leader, I felt like one of the key things was to talk about my own family, like my father struggled with depression my uncle um, struggled with depression and took his life. I've had other family members have issues with um, uh, OCD. Just like mental health is like real and present in, in everybody's families and we never talk about it. And so I've always felt like as a leader and as someone, especially who works with younger people who either have, might have their own experiences with mental health issues or, um, or, or a family member or a loved, you know, or a partner, um, I can't tell you the number of times where like someone would come to me and there'd be like a level of shame or worry in talking about mental health. And I would like, I would like come out basically as someone who like mental health issues have had an impact on my life. And so um, I just, I, so I really appreciate that you all have this podcast and you're talking about it. And I just think it's a health issue. Like we are human beings in these bodies and like, so uh, anyway, I, I just wanted to say that first. And so I think the, one of the key things like about like dealing with your mental health every day is like acknowledging that we have mental health. Like we, we mental well-being is real, just like physical well-being. And, um, and, and our bodies and our hearts and our minds need our care and um, attention and nurturing to, to thrive. And so um, you, if, you, if you try and pretend it's not there, you're doing yourself ultimately a, a massive disservice and, and more and maybe more importantly you're doing a massive disservice to the people who love you and so mm. I, so i guess the first thing is like in terms of just what do i do to take care of my mental health is i acknowledge i have one <laughs> and so and, and i <laughs> so that, i guess that would be that always thing. helps <laughs> <laughs> yes Great stuff. Well, that, that was great. Um, great advice. And there's definitely enough people, um, myself before probably a couple of years ago, who would deny 
that we suffered with anything because that wasn't the scene thing to do. Just uh, like you said, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and get on with it. To, you know, tough, um, stiff up, stiff British upper lip and all that type of nonsense. And uh, then things get like we are, one of our favorite words, which we've stolen from America, is squirrely. And um, <laughs> we've realized that when you start doing things like that, it gets squirrely very quickly. So, uh, so yeah, no, it's great advice. Uh, thank you very so much for your time. We really appreciate it, Joe. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks a million.